Hey folks, I'm Will Jarvis. Along with my dad, Dr. David Jarvis, I host the podcast Narratives. Narratives is a project exploring the ways in which the world is better than it has been, the ways it is worse, and the past toward making a better, more definite future. I hope you enjoy it. So, hey, Jason, how are you doing today? All right. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. So could you go ahead and give us a kind of a brief bio and how you got interested in progress and progress studies originally? Yeah, certainly. So my name is Jason Crawford. I write a website called The Roots of Progress, and it's basically a blog about the history of technology and the philosophy of progress. been writing that for about four years now, since early 2017. And for the last, it's been over a year now, I've been doing it full time. Uh, so prior to this, I was in the tech industry. My background's in computer science. I was a software engineer, engineering manager, and a tech startup co-founder. And I did that for almost 20 years before deciding to go full time on what had become, uh, so what had started out as a hobby and become kind of an obsession, which is this thing that has uh, you know, since then become known as progress studies. Awesome, that, that's great, Jason. So I, I wanted to just just jump right into it. What's uh, I, I love Deirdre McCloskey, and you mentioned mentioned her on a podcast you were recently on. So what's uh, Deirdre McCloskey's great fact, and why is it important? Yes, uh, what she refers to as the great fact is um, the fact of uh, what she also calls the great enrichment. The simple fact that um, incomes and uh, wealth and standards of living have risen dramatically or by orders of magnitude in the last roughly 200 years um, for uh, for not everybody around the world but for many people around the world and for you know for some to a lesser degree and some to a greater degree um, but uh, and that you know on top of this that that uh, rise in the standard of living is absolutely unprecedented for tens of thousands of years for all of human history there was nothing like it um, there was progress, but it was very slow compared to what we've seen in just the last two centuries. So that is the great fact, which, I mean, if you care at all about human life, health, happiness, flourishing, um, and agency, then I think you have to, you know, you have to look at that fact really in a little bit of awe. And, and you have to ask, how did this happen? Where did it come from? Can it continue? You know, right. and, and how do we keep it going? That that's great. So it, it seems really important. If you look at kind of curves of, you know, GDP growth, it's like flat line for just you know thousands of years. And you get to like, like you said, 200 years ago, it's like this crazy hockey stick up. Yeah. Uh, and and, what are and that's true, by the way, even if you look at it on a logarithmic scale. So it's not just that we had exponential growth for a long time and it looks really flat in the, because all exponential curves look really flat in the beginning. And then they but if you but if right. you actually look at growth rates, if you just look at the percentage uh, change, which is a constant in exponential growth, or if you look at things on a logarithmic or a, uh, rather a semi-log plot where you get straight lines in exponential growth, you can see that it's it's not at all con constant exponential growth over all that uh, time period. The rate of growth itself actually increased dramatically sometime, you know, circa 1800. Gotcha. And that seems really important because it's almost, it's in the water all around us. So it's easy to forget that this is not really the norm historically, it seems like. 
that exactly. you know, pro uh, speed of progress is generally quite slow. So in one of your blog posts, you wrote, we owe the modern world to three revolutions, the scientific revolution, the industrial re revolution, and the American revolution. And all three of these are less than 500 years old. Um, what are kind of some of the big takeaways from these three revolutions that are important for progress that may be kind of non-obvious to laymen? Hmm. I mean, you know, so those three sort of in, uh, stand in for almost all of human progress, right? So it's a, right. it's a broad question. I mean, um, the, you know, the big things, well, you know, what are the big things that we got out of the, out of the industrial revolution? Well, um, we all got rich essentially in terms of material goods, the kind of homes we can afford to live in and how comfortable we are, uh, the food we can eat, the clothes we wear, the vehicles that we get around in, um, and you know, our ability to just have uh, a materially comfortable life. We also got an enormous amount of uh, connection. Uh, you know, it is a much smaller world than it used to be because everything moves a lot faster. Goods and people move very fast around the globe, and information, you know, moves at at lightning speed, if not quite, um, literally, sometimes literally at the speed of light um, uh, over the over the airwaves. Uh, so it is a much more connected world than it used to be. We mu we used to be much more isolated from each other, and and it was a much more local and parochial world. Um, it is it is very much a global world now. Um, and then finally, uh, we got uh, we've really gotten a tremendous uh, degree of health and safety. Um, we uh, die of infectious disease far, far less than we used to. We live longer lives uh, on average. Our children can survive to adulthood as a matter of course. It's now considered a tragedy if a child dies before reaching adulthood. It used to be commonplace, uh, you know, a, a, frankly, a commonplace tragedy. Um, and, um, you know, even uh, deaths from accidents, from natural disasters and so forth are, are way down. Uh, the, the world in, in many ways, um, perhaps not every way, but in many ways is much safer than it used to be. Um, so I think that's, those are kind of the big things we got out of the Industrial Revolution. Now, out of the Scientific Revolution, obviously, we got a, a, a deep intellectual understanding of our world, um, and especially of the physical world, but, uh, you know, in a lot of ways of, of, of ourselves and of the social world um, as well. You know, we got physics, chemistry, biology, economics, literature, history, psychology, uh, you know, philosophy. Um, and then out of the, the political revolutions, and I said the American revolution in that post because there really is no term for, um, the, the broader term would be, I would say the, the, uh, the big shift from a world that was basically full of monarchy uh, and, and kingdoms and, and sort of that form of government right. uh, to today we have a world that is uh, much more dominated by democratic republics. Right, the, Rep the Republican right. form of government with democratically elected representatives. Um, and that shift was really kicked off by the American Revolution and then the rest of the world eventually followed suit or not all of it, but, but a lot of it followed suit. And so that is kind of the norm um, you know, today with some major exceptions, um, some, some more authoritarian countries, a, a few monarchies still left over, but a monarchy is a very backwards you know, way of form of government these days. Um, what did we get out of that? I think we fundamentally got a much greater degree of peace, uh, of freedom, and of uh, you know equality before the law, of of fairness and rights. And obviously, we still have a long way to go on all of those things. Um, but I really think they've come a, a long way since that, you know, since the, the 1700s, the age of you know of, of monarchy. 
That's really interesting. I was at a conference at George Mason and I was on the front row and, and Shruti was talking about kind of development economics. And she said, you know, what other system other than liberal democracy, you know, produces, you know, a society where you wouldn't want to live in? And I said, well, Singapore. And she said, yeah, but that's the only case. And the really important things about democracies is that people tend not to starve in democracies. It's a very rare occurrence. And she said, you know, she struggled. I haven't vetted this, but um, she struggled to find anyone that in any of these cases, do you think it's uh, you get rich and then you become a democracy or does being a democracy or a representative democracy help you become rich? Or are these things just kind of in extra, you can't pull them apart? Um, so at a high level, I do think that all of these different forms of human progress are intertwined, interdependent, and they're ultimately part of one story. There's a single gotcha. story of human progress that cuts across material progress, progress in science and knowledge, and progress in morality and society. Um, you know, that said, uh, I, I don't think, you know, if I look at, well, where did the American Revolution come from and the American experiment? Uh, I don't think it came from material prosperity, not exactly. Right, that's fair. Um, nor, uh, and if you look at, um, if you look at the countries that adopted uh, a sort of the democratic republic system later, like in the say mid 20th century, um, you know, generally I think the, the wealth also followed that rather than preceding it. Like um, Germany, Japan. But these things are all, but these things are all connected, um, you know, to some degree. Interesting. Interesting. Let's see. Uh, so I, I've been interested. It seems like this uh, kind of this, this, you know, growth rates increasing, 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 everything speeding up progress just seems to be moving really quickly started to slow down in maybe the 70s and I, I think it's interesting the fact that you're even working on something called progress studies you know trying to popularize this um, tells us that perhaps you know growth rates have started to kind of level out a little bit um, do you think this is the case uh, are you um, interested in kind of the decadence arguments and and what do you think about them um, I'm less familiar with the decadence arguments, and I'm slightly skeptical of from what I've heard. But I am um, I, I am now convinced by the stagnation argument. So let me explain gotcha. what that is and why I, I came around to it. Um, I did not get involved in what would later become called progress studies because of concerns about stagnation. Um, my initial attraction to the to studying this area was really just the much more, uh, you know, on, on the broader sweep of history, if you're looking back hundreds of years, thousands of years, um, stagnation is just like a, is a, is like a blip. I mean, you know, it's a, so small. You know, I mean, the pace of technology of, of progress now, even if it's slower than it used to be a hundred years ago, is still much faster than it ever was before the industrial revolution. Right. right. So like the big picture is Stag the real stagnation was all the time before the industrial revolution right and then um and it's been basically progress since then so that was what initially got me interested why were there tens of thousands of years of stagnation or relative stagnation and then you know finally somehow we in in just the last couple hundred years we unlocked the keys to, to high growth um but then when you zoom in a little bit further uh, and you start looking at the rate of progress on a decade by decade or, you know, half century by half century type of basis, 
Um, I think you do start to see that the pace of invention and of technological uh, development was significantly faster around, uh, you know, let's say the end of the 1800s into the early 1900s. Um, in a 50 year period from 1870 to 1920, we got the, uh, the telephone, radio, the television, the electrical industry, the really most of the development of the oil industry, the invention of the internal combustion engine, the car, the airplane, uh, most of the rollout of the germ theory, uh, including water sanitation and some of the first uh, vaccines after, um, uh, after Jenner. We got uh, the invention of plastic, the invention of the assembly line, uh, and 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 that you know uh, improvement in manufacturing and um, you know manufacturing costs like mass manufacturing, um, and probably some other things that I'm forgetting because there are just so many of them, right? All of that stuff in a 50-year period. Really fast. Those are all major sort of fundamental breakthroughs that just transformed each of which transformed its own sort of industry and then you know had ramifications that affected the entire world. In the last 50 years, so zoom, so now take that 50 year period and fast forward it 100 years, 1970 to 2020, basically the last 50 years. What comparable things have uh, have been invented in that same period? Things of the same order of magnitude, these fundamental revolutionary breakthrough or, or you know general purpose technologies. Basically, we've had computers and the internet. Right. Um, and a little bit of progress in genetic engineering, right? Um, yeah. And that's about it on like a really fundamental level. There have been no new vehicles uh, fundamentally, you know, I mean, um, I mean, you can't even really count rockets, which were invented, you know, and right. we went to the moon before 1970, right? Um, we haven't been back. Um, there have been no new fundamental types of materials that have been rolled out at a wide scale, right? Nothing comparable to, to plastics. There have been no new fundamental manufacturing, uh, you know, processes that, uh, you know, we're still basically making things in factories. 3D printing has not, you know, become, I mean, it's, it's a great technology, but it has not taken over manufacturing everything. the way that the factory system took over. Right. Um, there have been no, uh, we have not cured a major class of diseases the way that we cured infectious, essentially cured infectious disease through vaccine, sanitation, and antibiotics. Um, we've been trying to cure cancer and, you know, we've been making modest progress, but not revolutionary progress um, and so forth. You can, you can just sort of go down the line. So um, now when I first heard this idea that we, there was sort of technological stagnation, I was kind of skeptical. Um, and I felt, because, you know, you look back over the last 50 years and there's been a ton of stuff. Right. Um, I mean, computers and the internet, that is a, that's revolutionary. That's, that has changed the world. And there's been lots of progress in, in many other areas. You know, I mean, I say, I complain no new vehicles, right. But air travel has gotten cheaper and safer. Yeah. Um, cars have gotten safer. We've built out new highways. Um, you know, uh, there's been, so, you know, anywhere you look, there's been, there has been progress. There have been new treatments against cancer. There have been lots of medical devices, you know, so everywhere you look, you can see progress. You can list off tons and tons of inventions. Right. And so when I first heard the stagnation concept, I thought, you know, come on, um, uh, there's been lots of progress. What are you talking about? Um, and especially how can you ignore or downplay 
the computer and internet revolution, which right. is enormous, right? But then when I started listing things out, and again, you know, just sort of not at the level of all of the, I mean, the the challenge, the problem with this is, you can list tons of inventions that happened in any year for right. now going back to the 1800s. That does not tell you the magnitude, right? The stagnation hypothesis is not claiming that progress has completely stopped. It's not claiming that progress has gone to zero. So pointing to individual instances of progress do not disprove the stagnation hypothesis, right? To, right? To, to prove oh. or disprove it, you have to somehow compare magnitudes, right? You have to somehow say, yeah, but is that invention as important as this one, right? Yeah. Um, so there are kind of two ways to do that. There's a quantitative argument where you can look at like GDP growth, for instance, or TFP, which is total factor productivity, um, which is basically a measure of growth uh, where you subtract out the, uh, uh, the impact of capital and labor um, increases. And so what's left is the, re the residual that's left is sort of supposed to represent technological improvement. Um, so you can look at these numbers and GDP growth has been, you know, slowly declining. Um, but these numbers are very, like they're, pro all these numbers are problematic. Um, they do not capture consumer welfare. Uh, in fact, in a certain sense, you know, GDP goes up when prices go up, uh, which is, the, you know, or it goes down when prices go down, right? right. So when, so when, uh, you know, and, and when we get things for free, you know, like Google searches or, um, you know, or Facebook or, or whatever, uh, you know, these things don't show up in, right. um, in GDP. So, so there's a lot of problems with GDP. It's hard to know whether that's really capturing it. So what really convinced me was looking at the level of these sort of big fundamental revolutionary breakthroughs, like I just you know, outlined. When you, when you look at those, you can see that there were like four or five major revolutions all going on simultaneously, uh, you know, in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s. And there's only really been one, you know, maybe max, you could count two of them in the last, um, you know, in the last 50 years. Right. So, so you don't have to downplay or dismiss the computer revolution, right? The computer revolution is, is every bit as important as electricity, uh, as oil, uh, and the internal combustion engine, as the germ theory, as uh, you know, the factory system, and so forth. It's just not as revolutionary as four or five of those all going on at once, right? Exactly. <laughs> right. I mean, so to claim, in, in essence, to claim that there's been no slowdown, you have to claim that the computer and internet revolution, along with you know the inter the 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 sort of incremental progress that we've made in other areas, is you know, just that is the equal of oil, electricity, electronic communications, the internal combustion engine, the germ theory, and synthetic chemistry, like, like the yeah. sum total of that, right? And I just don't believe it. Just too much. I think that makes sense. I, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. So what do you think has gone wrong? Have, have the problems gotten harder? Have we gotten, is, are things too regulated? Uh, do people not try as hard? Is it all of these things? What do you yeah. think? So one, you're right. So one theory is sort of uh, the low-hanging fruit theory, which is essentially we picked all the low-hanging fruit. We solved all the easy problems. And uh, now there's just no easy problems left. There are only hard problems left. So it's like we were 
you know, it's like we were climbing a mountain and the first, uh, you know, the first stage we were just walking along the foothills and that was right. pretty easy. It was, and now we've hit the steep part. And so it's just going to be, you know, and so that sort of posits a natural um, slowdown. This, I would say, is essentially the theory of Robert Gordon, who wrote the book Rise and Fall of American Growth. He detailed, you know, very well um, the, the last 150 years of, of U.S. Uh, progress and standard of living. And, and I think makes a good case for this stagnation hypothesis. But he, his theory is that um, all of the innovation is gone. It's done, it's over. We found all the big inventions and there are no more left. I mean, it doesn't quite come out and say that explicitly, but that is basically that's his, that's basically his, uh, it's basically what he's saying. And I've, I've had the opportunity to question him about this. Oh, yeah. um, and and uh, I, that is my best understanding of what he believes. So there's that, you know, there's also the um, sort of the uh, Dietrich Volroth has this uh, came out of this book recently called fully grown. I have not read it yet, but I, my understanding of the essence of the theory is that there are sort of um, there are various things that we trade off against progress, like maybe increased consumption, you know, or leisure time, family time, and, you know, these, these kinds of things. And actually a good amount of the slowdown can be explained by these factors and therefore um, you know, uh, it's kind of uh, the slow, it's like a slowdown that we, that we chose in a certain sense. Um, Interesting. And that is more plausible to me, although it's uh, very hard for me to analyze. Is that really a good thing? It seems like, um, you know, it seems like maybe uh, I, I have a hard time being just comfortable with the slowdown because, Oh, we traded it off for, for leisure time. That's right. So the then you get the into, yeah. Um, so then you get into theories that I think are a little more along the lines of maybe what a Peter Thiel might say, or, um, or a Tyler Cowen, um, which is essentially that, you know, maybe something has gone wrong. Um, and maybe we have somehow dropped the ball of progress. Maybe we need to pick it up again. And so these are the theories that say essentially like this is a stagnation is evidence of a problem and we should fix it. Um, and so in, within this school, which I'm much more sort of sympathetic to, and this is the way that I lean right now, um, the biggest hypotheses I would say are um, uh, one, over-regulation, uh, you know, sort of creeping bureaucracy uh, that has, you know, given us a whole lot of rules and overhead um, and has not even necessarily made us safer in the ways that, you know, it, uh, the, the, that were sort of the rationale and the justification for those rules. Um, second, the way that we fund progress today, and especially the way that we fund research. Um, so there has, in the last 50 plus years, there's been a, especially in the United States, there's been a centralization and bureaucratization of research funding. Um, it's become much more centralized under large federal agencies, such as the NIH and the NSF. And these agencies use a uh, sort of committee-based uh, peer review process to give grants, which arguably lends itself to consensus and groupthink and right. excludes really you know, radical, innovative um, uh, scientific breakthroughs, which, you know, are always sort of opposed, they're always uh, consensus busting, right? They're, right. they're status quo defying um, uh, breakthroughs. And uh, 
the the maybe the the book that most uh, puts forth this thesis is the book Scientific Freedom by Donald Brobin, which was recently republished in a Stripe Press edition. Um, we actually and, we we talked to Don two weeks ago. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. So you've covered awesome that. guy. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, and this goes along, by the way, with a decline of the corporate research lab. So in the right. early 20th century, right there were um, uh, you know labs like uh, Bell Labs. Uh, General Electric, Kodak, uh, Dow, and DuPont, uh, you know, and so forth. And um, some of the biggest uh, breakthroughs of the, you know, the early and middle part of the century came from the transistor from Bell Labs. Nylon was an invention of, uh, of DuPont that came out of their chemistry research. Um, you know, Kodak made some, uh, some discoveries in optics and, you know, so forth. So, um, but corporate labs don't seem to be what they used to be. And uh, they don't seem to be as ambitious or as long-term. Um, you know, they, they seem to be under, corporations seem to be under a bit more short-term pressure to kind of do things that are directly linked to the near-term bottom line. And right. long-term scientific research is not that because it pays off on very long time scales and it's, you don't always capture all the value, right? You're publishing right. scientific papers. So, um, so, it, so it's quite possible that something has gone wrong with the funding of progress. That's hypothesis number two. Hypothesis number three is a is much deeper one about kind of um, cultural and philosophic attitudes towards progress. Um, in the late 1800s, uh, the late 1800s, uh, you know, America and Europe was a very pro-progress society. Interesting. They believed in they believed in you know progress with a capital P. Um, maybe they believed in it almost uh, blithely in the sense of thinking that it was inevitable and that the march of progress would just go on and that nothing could stop it. Um, but they did believe in it you know, fundamentally that progress was real and important and good and that it was making everybody's lives better. And they could see that, um, you know, in, in people could see that progress in their own lives. Somewhere in the 20th century, this changed. Um, you can see it very clearly in the rise of the counterculture in the 1960s, um, and especially in the especially in the environmentalist movement, um, but in you know a number of movements that came out sort of very anti-technology, um, you know, anti-capitalism and so forth. But I am starting to believe that the origins of this shift uh, are actually in the World Wars. Interesting. Pre World War One there was a belief, uh, a growing belief that the, that the onward march of progress, of, of, of material progress and what people saw as, you know, better relations. I mean, we were, the growth of global trade and everything, you know, with more wealth and prosperity and more global trade uh, that, you know, we were just on the path to perfect uh, humanity as well. And that, perhaps humanity had seen an end of war. After all, why would anybody go to war when they were trading with each other and everybody was getting richer and so forth? Um, and World War I completely shattered those illusions. And there was a real reckoning. Uh, people had to uh, ask themselves what went wrong. And then, you know, World War II, of course, came not long after. I mean, it was, it was just a generation uh, later, if, you know, if that even. Um, and, uh, and that really caused, you know, people to wonder, especially since, of course, uh, through the world wars, people saw the terrible, terrible effect of the application of technology to war. Right. Um, you know, I mean, World War One was begun in part because 
uh, some of the powers that that started it thought it would be short, <laughs> um, and, and it turned into a uh, you know it turned into a quite terrible war, um, where uh, you know chemical weapons were used and right. uh, the the machine gun which had been recently invented was used to mow down troops and they had to retreat into their trenches and you got this long drawn out trench warfare, um, and then World War Two. Uh, you know, was very obviously um, one, you know, fought and won with and by technology. Um, we had tanks, we had planes, we had uh, radar, we had, and ultimately we had the atomic bomb. Right. And so, you know, that, that was just a very dramatic demonstration that technology will not always be used for peaceful purposes, um, that it can be used for mass destruction. So I think coming out of the world wars, there was just like a mass soul searching that had to happen um, where people were wondering what is this new world that we have created and uh, and is it really good and um, you know I think the world was at a sort of a crossroads and it could have gone in different directions depending on the intellectual leadership that we had I think it would have been possible at that time for uh, you know, for some intellectual leaders to step up and to say, look, progress can still be good, but it's much more dangerous than we realized. And by the way, it's it certainly, you know, progress in material technology certainly has not perfected our, mor our morality. Right. Um, and, and we can come and, and in fact, technology, you know, can be combined with truly evil social systems. Um, and we need to, you know, we need progress in our, in, in our social systems, just as at least as fast as progress in our material technology. That makes a lot but of that sense. That wasn't exactly the leadership that we got. And so instead, I think um, we got a lot of theories that uh, the technology itself was the problem that we needed to, you know, maybe somehow return to our roots, um, that nature was healthier than technology um, and so forth. And so I think we've been reckoning with that ever since. Um, now, some of those ideas were around for a very long time. I don't mean to suggest that they began in the mid 20th century. Um, some of those ideas go back to the very beginning of the industrial age. Uh, but I think they really kind of took on a new life and a new form um, in the, you know, in the post-war period. Um, and I think we are still wrestling with that and that, that, that fight or that, that intellectual struggle is still going on. That makes a lot of sense. It seems like when the most vivid picture of technology you have is the mushroom cloud, one yeah. might be skeptical about. Interesting. Interesting. So I want to ask you about, um, you know, you're covering progress in all these different areas. You're looking at progress in all this, all these different areas. What does moral progress look like to you? Is it an expanding circle of concerns? Um, is it bourgeois values? What does it look like? Yeah. Um, so the single best book I've read on this is Steven Pinker's book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, gotcha. which was kind of the prelude to his book, Enlightenment Now, um, which I'll just add as a side note is if you want to read one book about progress, I would probably read Enlightenment Now. Um, but um, yeah, Better Angels of Our Nature is about the decline of violence. So I think that is one major facet of the progress in morality. Um, we have progressively eliminated violence from our society. And um, obviously it's not gone yet, but if you read, uh, if you read Pinker's book, you can see that there are really the world used to be a lot more violent in many ways. Um, Interesting. Just the other day I was reading a, uh, 
a, a newspaper story from about a hundred years ago of um, people pulling out a gun to shoot at motorists who didn't stop for a for a stop sign or traffic light or something like that. You know? Oh God! Um, uh, and if you go back to the you know to the Middle Ages, oh my God, torture was common. Not only was it common, torture was entertainment. You know, people would gather in a public square to stone prisoners or to watch a hanging. Or they would right. play games with animals where they would torture and kill animals. I mean, it was just, it's really, I think you wouldn't believe it. If you were suddenly teleported back in time, you know, even uh, a few hundred years ago, certainly back to the Middle Ages, I think there are a lot of things that would horrify you. But I suspect that, you know, perhaps man's cruelty to man would be, you know, one of the most, uh, you know, absolutely horrifying things where you just say, get this me out of really here. This is really bad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, so that's one. I think there's a number of other things as well. Um, our form of government has, you know, become much more under um, sort of more formal, objective, legal control, right? Um, the phrase the founders used, right? A government of laws and not of men. Uh, we used to have, you know, much more a government. Uh, government was dominated by personalities and by charismatic rulers. And we're not always so charismatic, but, you know. Um, kings and aristocrats and, uh, and things were much more at their whim. We have gone a long way towards, uh, you know, turning our societies into societies of processes and laws. And as much as that creates bureaucracy, um, and as much as, of course, there are still, there's still opportunity for loopholes and corruption, um, I really think we've gone a long way towards, um, you know, a, a, a much more objective form of government. Um, I mean, you know, the peaceful transition of power, Success. which we had threatened this year, you know, with a, a, a riot at the Capitol. Um, but uh, nonetheless, Inauguration Day, you know, we, we went ahead and we and we continued with the peaceful transfer of power. Um, that is, I mean, the peaceful transfer of power, I think, is just highly underrated. If you start reading, um, you know, medieval history, so, I mean, so many wars were just wars of succession. Right. Who gets it a role next? A, yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, I mean, what some other things uh, on this theme of kind of making, you know, more formal process. Um, trial by jury. And for that matter, the elimination of trial by ordeal. <laughs> right. right. Um, the outlawing of dueling as right. a means of settling disputes. Right. Um, uh, and so forth. Right. So you can kind of just you can kind of go through and you can see there are all these different ways in which we've actually, we actually have made progress um, as a society. Um, you know, another angle and Pinker covers this to some degree, the, you mentioned the expanding circle of concern, right? So the notion of humanity as um, essentially, you know, we're, that we're all essentially the same, we're all humans and we all have the same human rights. That is a relatively new concept that, uh, you know, Pinker argues comes out of the enlightenment prior uh, to uh, you know the 17 1800s or so it was very natural to think of all of humanity in terms you know split into our own tribes and to think of other races as just you know wasn't that other races were thought of as inhuman so much as other races they were just other and the, and, right. and there were other with a capital o right and they were not us and and you did not give regard to the other and this was just a natural and universal, you know, way of thinking. 
um, that has very deep roots in, in you know, our tribal origins. And it is only in the last century or two that we've been able to emerge out of that and been able to see uh, you know, everybody as, as, as humans, as fundamentally the same, you know, the same race, the human race, and to grant that everybody should have um, the same rights and to grant women the same rights and to grant all, all races the same rights and the end of slavery and, and universal suffrage and, uh, and so forth. And these things have not, um, you know, are not absolutely everywhere in the world anymore. And again, you know, um, just the fact that these things are written down and, and, and codified in law doesn't mean that they are observed. There can be loophole, uh, loopholes, there can be corruption uh, that, that uh, you know, and so forth. But having them written down is the first step. <laughs> Right. Um, and, and there was a point at which, and, at which the laws did not even, in theory or in form, guarantee universal rights, in, in which uh, unequal rights were literally uh, official and were written into the law. And so, um, you know, get a, getting equality written into the law is the first step, and then you can root it out, um, you know, where it's still, where, where abrogations of those rights still exist in in practice, even if not, uh, you know, in theory. Interesting. Are there things you think have gotten worse since objectively worse since the beginning of the industrial revolution, kind of at a societal level, like maybe social well, we atomization have, or something? We, something yeah, like I mean, um, we certainly have many problems today that we didn't have in the past. Um, now that itself is not really, even that itself doesn't, necessarily uh, mean that we haven't had net progress. Generally, the problems that we have today are better than the problems that we used to have. But I think it's important to recognize that uh, progress always creates new problems. Progress is messy. It's not linear. It is not monotonic. Um, and it's not always a, a Pareto you know, trade-off for, uh, for everybody, gotcha. right? Um, uh, you know, new technologies throw people out of work. And that sucks for them, at least in the short term. Um, and right. maybe in the medium term, you know, even though it's good for most people and it's good in the long term, right? Um, new technologies and, uh, you know, the growth of industry created a lot of pollution. Um, and we have subsequently cleaned up, you know, a lot of that pollution. But in the, you know, um, in the meantime, I mean, you know, uh, London in the late 1600s or Pittsburgh in the 1800s, those were filthy places, right? Because of coal, mostly. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, as progress goes along, it, it throws off problems. Um, those problems, I mean, again, uh, you know, usually the problems are better than the problems that we had before. And the new problems, this is really important, the new problems themselves are solvable. So I think, um, you know, rather than thinking of progress as kind of this clean, linear, you know, monotonic, just everything always gets better and nothing ever gets worse. We need to think right. of progress as a series, a series of trade-offs that make us better on net. Um, and we need to recognize that just as, uh, you know, the problems never go away. We're never, we will never have solved the last problem, right? Progress always creates new problems um, and, and, and we will always solve them uh, if, we, if we can and if we choose to. This is the view um, I, you, I think you get really clearly from David Deutsch in his book, The Beginning of Infinity. Um, where he, he talks about it as, uh, you know, just as our expanding sphere of knowledge 
is constantly opening up new questions, right? You don't criticize a scientific theory by saying, well, yeah, that theory answered some questions, but it opened up a bunch of new ones. Right. Right. Everybody understands that is the way science works. That is not a, that is not a, a criticism of a theory, right? That's just how our knowledge expands. The same thing is true in essence of, uh, of our ability to act and solve problems. Um, the fact that a new technology opened up new problems while solving old ones is not inherently a, a you know, a criticism of that technology. Um, so yeah, um, we have lots of new problems today. We have information overload, which I mean, frankly, every new uh, information technology, starting with writing and books, has right. created a relative information overload that people complained about at the time, right? Um, we have, uh, you know, and we have a we have a distraction economy, you know, as people you know like talk about because there's so much information all around us and it's so enticing, and we have all these apps that are, you know, so like that's a real problem. Um, we have health and nutrition problems that we never had. Um, you know, we have obesity. That is, um, I mean, it, again, falls into the context. It's sort of a great problem to have, right? The problem so for rich. most of human history was famine. Right. Um, and now the, you know, and now in, in, in the wealthier countries, the problem is obesity. But obesity is still a problem and it's a bad one. It's one we should solve. Um, you know, and then there are sort of more localized uh, crises as well. Like, I mean, the opioid uh, crisis right now is very real. Um, so, uh, you know, there are there are certainly um, new things, and there and there, you know, and there are challenges. I mean, um, new infectious diseases like COVID can spread rapidly around the world because of our transportation technology, right? Right. Um, you know, but then at the same time, our in information about COVID spread rapidly around the world. Um, you know, even faster than the virus itself could spread, we broadcast the genome of the virus as soon as it was found. And then we started making mRNA vaccines against it as soon as we had the genome. So, um, you know, again, the technology gives us new problems and it also gives us new ways of solving those problems. That makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. I, I think I know the answer to this question. Um, I like to ask us this question. Would you rather be JP Morgan when he was alive or Jason Crawford today? Yeah. Well, I wouldn't want to be anybody other than Jason Crawford, but um, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, you know, even just comparing standard of living, I don't think I would go back to JP Morgan's day, even if I had his fortune. Right. right? Um, just just got to think about not even having ibuprofen. You know, not just, having ibuprofen, you know, right? Not having. Well, Morgan might have had. Uh, actually, Morgan had aspirin. Um, aspirin. That's fair. Um, but you know, he didn't even have electric lights until they were invented. You know, when he was <laughs> later in his life, he didn't have air conditioning. Um, he didn't. Uh, you know, he couldn't um, fly in a plane to go to. Uh, you know, to go on a vacation. Um, he couldn't. You know, read things or play games on the internet, right? Um, uh, he couldn't uh, take antibiotics if he got an infection, right? So there's uh, um, there's a lot of things. You know, he couldn't get a flu vaccine. There's a lot of things right. that um, a lot of ways in which we're we're far better off today. Makes sense. So Jason, what does progress studies look like ten years from now, and and what are the most understudied areas within progress studies that you see? Yeah. Um. I think we need a lot more research and a lot more writing, and that is the fundamental, the foundation of this. I think um, progress studies is a, a nascent intellectual movement, and every movement needs to start off with a whole lot of writing. Um, right. My research and writing is about the history of technology. It's about telling this story that is, um, 
you know, the story that needs to be put together, I think, fundamentally, there's nothing new in the sense that an academic would consider there to be something new. I think all the stories have been told, they're out there, but the material is um, not very accessible outside of the specialty. It is hard to find out, you know, even, even a simple question like, look, what exactly is steel? And how does it relate to iron? And why is it hard to make? And how did we get better at making it? That was a hard question for me to, like you'd think there'd just be an essay you could go read. And now right. there is, but it, but because I wrote it, you know. Um, uh, you know, that's the sort of thing that I think that kind of knowledge needs to be more um, broadly accessible. So I would love to, see, so I'm currently writing a book or planning a book on the history of progress that will tell all of these key stories and put them together into a framework that you can understand. Um, I think we need a lot more of it. You know, I would love to see a book about um, the history of nuclear power and uh, what was the promise? Why did it not come about? Um, gotcha. What are the actual, uh, you know, prospects for it going forward? I'd love to see a book about um, plastic, which I think is, you know, highly underrated uh, material uh, that, it, I mean, it's a really, it's, a, it's an amazing wonder material that it just has all these amazing properties and has taken over our world for a very good reason. But I think it's highly underappreciated. And I've read two histories of plastic, you know, and I wasn't happy with, wasn't fully happy with either of them. So, you know, I think we need something better. So I think we need more stuff like that. Um, I also think we just need more popular media. Um, uh, uh, Anton Howes uh, was recently compiling a list of movies about inventors and progress. And, um, you know, so many of them are so bad. They just don't dramatize the actual inventive pro process. Um, you know, they just, there is there very little about invention itself. I think we need to um, have more dramatic depictions of what invention is like. Um, I recently read uh, David McCullough's History of the Wright Brothers and oh, their yeah. invention of the airplane. That would make a marvelous movie. Um, I also recently read uh, Charles Mann's book, The Wizard and the Prophet, which tells, among other things, the story of Norman Borlaug. That would make an amazing movie. Um, so I think we need more sort of popular, you know, depictions of this stuff. Um, and then, uh, you know, ultimately we need uh, people to start working this into uh, policy proposals, right? Right. Um, you know, if we are overregulated, what type of regulatory reform do we need? Um, you know, the FDA, for example, started out, you know, as a way to protect people against some truly horrible things that were going on in, in you know, food and drug manufacturing, right? Right. Um, with, with, you know, manufactured food and drugs being, uh, you know, really uh, not at all pure. I mean, really adulterated with bad substances and, you know, um, it was a bad time. A hundred years later, it's grown into this regulatory agency that, um, you know, I mean, I think did a significant amount to slow down um, our response to COVID. Right. Um, how did it go from something that was, you know, protecting us or trying to protect us against some real, you know, abuses to something that, um, you know, is, has, is actually harming our ability to, uh, you know, to, to advance health. Somebody needs to tell that story and come up with an actual proposal for how to fix it um, and, and gain, you know, credibility and, and gain traction for that proposal. Um, and we probably need similar things with like NIH and NSF um, and maybe with um, uh, Eli Dorado has written some good stuff about um, uh, environmental review and how much it slows down 
um, construction and, you know, building things and doesn't even, he claims, you know, do what it, what it purports. It doesn't even protect the environment in the way that it purports to do. Um, construction actually is another great uh, one that somebody really needs to dig into. Um, why does it take us so long to build anything? Um, uh, there's, in fact, there's an entire project uh, out of NYU right now called the Transit Cost Project that's going on um, where they're just looking at how long it takes to build public transit, you know, like subways and light rail and stuff. Right. And in the U.S. today, the costs are enormous. They're enormous compared to what they used to be, and they're enormous compared to the best uh, examples in other countries around the world. So why are we so bad at this, right? And what what could make it better? Um, uh, and then, you know, ultimately, what I would like to see is for um, the progress studies movement to um, work out among you know, among the people who want to do all this research and writing, I want us to kind of have an ongoing conversation and to work out a kind of, you know, a kind of theory, a set of ideas um, and principles and concepts. Uh, I sometimes say we need to write like the Federalist Papers of Progress Studies, you know, I kind of want to see that effort. Um, and eventually we need to get this material out there in a way that inspires people to actually take action. We should be inspiring uh, young people or people earlier in their careers to do, you know, to, to pursue ambitious goals in science, engineering, and uh, entrepreneurship. Um, and we should be encouraging uh, people with money to uh, be seeking out and experimenting with new ways of finding and funding this talent and these ambitious projects. That's ultimately what I want I want progress studies to both motivate those efforts and to inform and guide them. That's, I think, the that is the you know the decades out goal and how this can actually change the world and accelerate progress for all of us. That makes a lot of sense. So, Jason, do you have any other parting shots? That is, it, where <laughs> should people find you? All this good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, find subscribe to uh, my blog rootsofprogress.org. Um, you can subscribe by RSS or email and um, find me on Twitter. Um, I'm Jason Crawford on Twitter. And those are the places where I, uh, where I write and post the most. Awesome. Well, thank you, Jason. Absolutely. It's been a great conversation. Thanks for having me on. Learned a lot. Well, that's our show for today. I'm Will Jarvis. And I'm Will's dad. Join us next week for more narratives.